Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Michael C. Riddell. He's a full professor in the School of Kinesiology and Health Science at York University. And we're going to talk about uh, type 1 diabetes. So, Mike, thanks for coming. Hey, Richard. My pleasure to be here. Yeah, since you do kinesiology, but you also deal with diabetes, how do the two interface for you? Oh, I was always fascinated by the exercise sciences. Even as a, a teenager, I loved the sports medicine angle. But my own diagnosis of type 1 diabetes sent me down a path of, of researching and lecturing in the area of metabolism and, and endocrinology and, and sports, I guess, and, and exercise. That, that was a, a personal, I guess, journey okay. that I took. So um, at what age were you diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? I was diagnosed at the age of 15, and I had s- similar symptoms to a lot of the other people who are diagnosed as adolescents with a bit of weight loss and fatigue and frequent urination, and, and that's when my life changed, uh, in a way for the, for the better, some might say, and some might say for the worse. Well, I'm glad if you see it as, a, as, you know, as something for the better, and now you're working in the field and you're helping other people, and that's, it all turned out to be a good thing, I guess. You know? Yeah, I think so. I think so. It uh, certainly gave me a passion to study a bit harder at school and to have that thirst of knowledge that, that, that came with that diagnosis, that's for sure. So tell me about your, your research. What are you looking into? My research really spans the area of metabolism uh, and diabetes. So I'm, fa- I'm fascinated by why people with diabetes can have a challenge uh, doing exercise, why their blood sugar can fluctuate. Sometimes it goes high, sometimes it goes low. And my research program looks at the mechanisms for why exercise is beneficial in diabetes, but also how, the, how there can be challenges with respect to a person's blood sugar management and then trying to come up with ways using technology and, um, and science to try to solve some of those problems that, that people have. So, again, what, are you looking at how diabetes modulates uh, insulin usage and you know, glucose levels or like what are some specific... Yeah, so over the years, uh, now that I've been doing this for some 25 years, my topics have have touched on all sorts of different aspects of of exercise, metabolism, and diabetes. I've looked at, at different animal models of why exercise is good for the prevention of type 2 diabetes, what are the mechanisms of action for why be, being physically active promotes insulin sensitivity, and maybe even the growth of beta cells, which are the cells that produce insulin. Um my research also focuses on how stress can impact blood sugar levels and exercise is one form of stress, but we have other forms of stress in our life that are even more common, perhaps, um, how that makes blood sugar levels more difficult to, to control. What are the mechanisms for that around cortisol secretion and how to modulate insulin delivery so that we can fine tune our blood sugar levels before, during, and after exercise is another area of, of passion that we do with the uh, some of our human work, and then using emerging technologies to sense exercise, when is the body moving, and, there, and therefore automatically try to change the insulin delivery if someone's wearing 
an insulin pump, how do we better inform that insulin pump about how much insulin to give? Because quite quite frankly, you don't need much insulin in circulation when you're doing some forms of exercise, uh, but you need some. And if you don't have enough, then blood sugar gets dangerously high. But but on, on the occasion that you have a bit too much insulin, blood sugar gets quite dangerously low. So it's about fine-tuning fine-tuning that insulin delivery system so that you can be in good blood sugar management when you do exercise and when you recover from exercise. Well, what happens typically? Well, you know, I'm, I'm sure yeah. everyone's different, but what, what are been, some of the, uh, the main ways that uh, insulin is used and what do the levels look like and glucose look like before, during, after exercise? So if you don't have diabetes, typically your body shuts down the production of insulin to very, very low levels when you start aerobic exercise like let's say you go for a walk or a jog or a swim you want a, a just a small amount in your circulation because the muscles actually take up the glucose without the need of insulin but you need a little bit of insulin to keep the liver in check from from producing too much glucose or producing too many ketones during exercise so we know that that's the normal response what happens in diabetes in type 1 diabetes if patients are taking insulin by needle or by insulin pump what we see is their insulin levels they, they actually go up a little bit because there must be some increased absorption of that insulin that's being administered. So high insulin typically means low glucose during exercise. If you have type one diabetes or if you have type two diabetes and you take insulin um, as part of your medication. So we, it's about trying to tailor that prescription such that you can lower the insulin physiologically as soon as you start to exercise so you don't have a low blood sugar reaction. Don't lower it too much or you might have a high blood sugar reaction. So does this tell you it's, you know, for a regular person, it probably won't affect them too badly, but it's bad to have, let's say, a heavy meal before your exercise, not just because you're trying to digest it and everything, but maybe that'll cause a, a flood of insulin, which will uh, suppress the availability of glucose for your muscles? Absolutely. You're, you're bang on, Richard. If you, if you have a large carbohydrate-rich, simple carbohydrate-rich meal or a sugary snack before exercise, even if you don't have diabetes, that high insulin that inevitably is already in your circulation, it doesn't disappear right off the bat. It, it basically, it, it, it makes exercise more of a challenge because it just pushes too much glucose into the cells of the body such that your brain and your central nervous system begin to starve for glucose. And you might even have symptoms of shakiness, confusion, weakness, uh, which can happen even if you don't have diabetes. It just tends to happen much more frequently if you have diabetes because it's really difficult to, to fine-tune that insulin delivery, um, using, even, even using an artificial pancreas or, or an insulin pump. So what happens if um, you know, you're, you're pre-diabetic, Mm-hmm. For type two, where you have type two actively, or if you have type one, what are the what happens in those terms? What we what we like to do is think about the time of day that you do your exercise, and there may be for some individuals a safer time to do it. We we see in pre diabetes and, and in type two diabetes, exercise soon after large meals is the way to go. It helps it helps to complement the person's blood sugar management by helping to facilitate glucose disappearance from the bloodstream into the working muscles. Often, if you have pre-diabetes or type 2 diabetes, blood sugars will go up quite high after a, a large meal, and that's when you want to add exercise. But in type 1 diabetes, if you add the exercise then, and the person's already taken their insulin dosage prior to the, to the meal, it ends up being too much activity in the face of too much insulin, and blood sugar drops, and they, they get what's called hypoglycemia. And that, that could be quite severe with disorientation, loss of consciousness, even seizures or convulsions. So we think a lot about the timing of exercise 
uh, for people who have pre-diabetes type 2 or type 1. And then we think uh, about how to modify the exercise intensity because we can also make exercise a bit safer if we if we tailor the intensity. So for example, if blood sugars tend to be on the low side, the harder you exercise, the less likely you're going to have a drop in blood sugar because we start to bring in some other hormones like adrenaline that helps to keep blood sugar up. So we've been trying, trying to fine tune the exercise prescription based on the type of diabetes you have and whether you're on insulin therapy or not. What does the profile of uh, glucose usage look like? Like do the muscles use it first preferentially and then when that supply is exhausted, does the liver kick in to do like gluconeogenesis? Like, you know, yeah, what happens? In a, in a perfect, in a perfect situation, your, your muscle would use the glucose that's readily available at the beginning of an exercise session. And then if an exercise session lasts a long time, like maybe an hour or more, you, you should hopefully start to get more contribution from the liver because it can dump glucose into circulation. It can also make glucose from other substrates, but this can become disordered in diabetes. So we don't have that perfect balance of glucose uh, uptake and delivery to the muscle. It, it can be quite disordered. Um, and again, we can fine tune the exercise prescription because we can change the fuels that the muscle is using if we select the exercise more carefully, more wisely. So for example, if you, if you want to burn mostly fats, you can exercise at a lower intensity for a very long period of time and you don't burn the glucose at such a high rate. But if you want to burn glucose, let's say your blood sugar is a bit on the high side, you want to exercise at around 60% of your maximum capacity, maybe maybe up to 80%, and that tends to mop the glucose up quite nicely. So we've been working with patients and clinicians to try to better understand what's the right intensity based on your glucose levels at the time of exercise. Well, for athletes, I can see you'd want a whole program of exercise. And the nature of it would change as you go. And just for regular folks, I can tell you from experience, um, you know, somewhere in the pre-diabetic range, I've worn a CGM you know, from Dexcom for a while. Mm-hmm. And I noticed, um, you know, I mean, getting better, which is good. But I noticed um, after a meal, if I eat something and I'm like, oh, no, you know, it's going high, I go for a walk immediately. And after about 20 minutes in, uh, the exercise will pull down the glucose pretty quickly, you know, 20 or 30 points. So it, it really helps a lot. So I've noticed that, uh, you know, engaging your muscles seems to chew it up quick. Yeah. And hopefully well, the, uh, the glucose preferentially will be shunted back to them. That's in my body, you know. Yeah, well, you're you're bang on. You, I think we've all discovered so much more with the advent of continuous glucose monitors. It's really opened our lens up to what is happening with with exercise at different times of the day and different intensities of exercise, and also the benefits of exercise uh, for all of us, whether we live with with pre diabetes, diabetes, or or no diabetes. Really, it's been quite exceptional. And now, athletes who don't have diabetes are starting to uh, get a hold of this technology, CGM technology, that is, um, and trying to fine tune their nutrition patterns so that they can be at optimal performance, optimizing the carbohydrate stores in the body, and then understanding when to initiate carbohydrate feeding, let's say if they're in a long bike ride or, or a marathon event. So we've really learned a lot from CGM over the last 10 years. Yeah, I can see that, you know, sticking your fingers, there's so much data that you don't see. You know, I can see the profile, like, for instance, you know, if I eat a meal, maybe not the greatest one, my glucose will come up and then it's slow to come down. My wife is like the opposite. Hers will go up really high, but come down really fast and then, you know, bottom out. So we have like very different, you know, glucose usage. It looks like I don't exactly know why, but 
you yeah, see think, all that on a CGM. You know? I think we all do have slightly different patterns of glucose usage. And, and I must say in all of our human studies now, we use CGM quite heavily and learning so much about even in the 12 to 24 hours after an exercise event, there is impact. We can see that on the CGM and we find that quite fascinating. For, for, for one example, if you do late day exercise and you have, you have diabetes, you can see much lower levels overnight when you're sleeping. And you can see the benefit at the, at the next meal, maybe, maybe six hours later. And I think that we didn't realize that until we started to use CGM to its full potential. And I think there's still some potential for CGM. Um, I think as the units get smaller and more, more cost effective, uh, more comfortable, then more and more people will be using them. And we'll probably learn a lot more about our unique patterns of energy utilization around exercise. Yeah, and I can see also too that uh, which numbers correlated with which feelings, and it didn't always correlate, but a lot of times it did. You know, if mine went up to anywhere above, you know, one thirty to one forty and up, it's like you really start to not feel well. So again, yeah. dealing with correlator, if it goes low, low for me maybe seventy, low for someone else maybe sixty or fifty. Exactly, and and uh, you know when I was diagnosed some almost, well, I guess thirty years ago, we were always kind of going on our gut, going on our feelings. And that over time became a bit dangerous because we would not recognize our symptoms of low blood sugar. You know, our, our loved ones or family members might notice that our blood sugar was too, too low, but we, we didn't, we didn't notice it. A CGM is basically now such that we can pretty accurately determine what our sugars are 24 seven, give, give us alerts and alarms if it goes too high or too low, but also correlate our, our, our feelings with, with our own sugar. And we're doing that now with all sorts of athletes, some athletes with diabetes, but also some athletes who don't have diabetes. And we're learning that their glucose levels can predict their performance, even if they don't have diabetes. If the blood sugar is dropping below 70 milligrams per deciliter in a, in a non-diabetic cyclist or elite level uh, athlete, then we see their performance drop. And if the blood sugar levels rise above maybe 140, 160, they start to have a sluggish feeling as well. So I think there's a sweet spot for all of us and CGM's helping us to learn what that sweet, what that sweet spot is for us, for our, for our everyday performance, as well as for elite level competition. Yeah, when are you going to invent the uh, continuous insulin monitor? I'm waiting for that to come. That would be really cool. Yeah, well, we're looking at uh, different inventors. Uh, there are some researchers who are looking at other subcutaneous monitors for things like lactate, ketone, and insulin. Insulin is a really tricky one to get. It, it's at very low, low concentrations in the body. It doesn't seem to have the same equilibrium with the interstitial fluid that glucose does. And glucose is an easy molecule to sense because you just can have a glucose oxidase a chemical reaction. And then that, that can give you a reading, but insulin's much, much trickier. I think it'll come, but it, it may require some pretty savvy engineer work. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. And I think glucose can be used as a proxy for insulin, maybe anyway. I think that if you see your glucose levels high, um, let's say after a large meal, you can then predict that your insulin's probably also climbing too, particularly if you then see the glucose drop back down, you know, the insulin's probably lagging behind the glucose a little bit. So there might have to be some modeling that goes on to try to estimate insulin in, in circulation. But I think it'd be a great discovery if we could get there. In terms of a proxy, 
with a glucose monitor, CGM, what if you just integrated the total amount of glucose over a time period, over a, mm -hmm. you know, a week or, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I think they go 14 days max, but yeah. that would probably give you a much better estimate of insulin, right? Yes, I think so too. There are some, well, first of all, the hemoglobin A1C is looking at the sugar coating of our red blood cells and the red blood cells are cells that last in our body. They, they carry oxygen, but they last in the body for, you know, 28 days to, to maybe a little bit longer. So looking at the sugar coating of these cells is a good proxy for average blood sugar exposure over the span of a, you know, a couple months, but looking at CGM readings have, have taught us uh, that a lot more might be going on that's not shown with an A1C, like how much low exposure your body's getting, how much variability your body's getting in glucose, which the A1C doesn't give us. So we're now, as researchers and clinicians, moving towards um, what's called an ambulatory glucose profile using CGM, where we can quantify these changes in, in glucose, the time below a given target range and above, and then we can start to estimate the insulin changes that might be going on as, as a proxy. And again, it's, it's, I think a lot of attention is being paid on glucose, but maybe we should be thinking more and more about what insulin is doing in our body because insulin might be having both advantageous and disadvantageous effects in our body. Well, if I have, you know, if I use a CGM and I'm not logging everything and keeping it and again, integrating the total glucose put out over a time period, I may think I'm fine, but I may have like very high insulin. I just wouldn't mm -hmm. know it because mm -hmm. all I see day to day is, oh, it's high, it's low, it's high, it's low. Or if today it was pretty good. It only moved, you know, 50 points total. But I may not know that insulin in the background may be very high. Exactly. And I think that the one of the challenges that we face is that although glucose is regulated pretty tightly in our bloodstreams, unless we have diabetes, the glucose is around 90 in the fastest state and it might go up to 140 or so it might go to 70 but it's it's pretty it's pretty consistent if you don't have diabetes insulin is all over the map like there are some people whose insulin levels are 10 20 fold higher than you might see in the average person so it's almost as if insulin is is spent at the expense of glucose and so i think for all of us it'd be really nice to know what's our average insulin exposure like in the in, in a day and how much does it change throughout the day and and is it better to maybe not have that those insulin surges or is it okay to have insulin surges every now and again when we want to increase that glucose storage into glycogen so that, that i think we've got a lot to learn in the future on that if we could develop a good continuous insulin assay so what you know what are some key learnings you have for people that are you know dealing with type one or type two, they're not athletes and they just want to be able to exercise because they've been told they should, but yeah. do it in a safe way that helps them. Well, for type one diabetes, we're, we try to convince people that it's, it's really almost as important as taking insulin and, and eating a healthy diet because we know from epidemiological studies that if you are physically active with type one, even though maybe your blood sugar isn't really all that much better it might actually be a little bit worse because it's hard to control. You're living about 10 years longer. So that, that's pretty incredible to think that exercise has these majestic effects on our body that are making people with type one live, live longer. And there's, there's reduced complications. So the complications typically associated with type one would be early um, retinal damage or, or eye disease, early kidney disease, early heart disease, early vascular disease. These are all delayed in people who are more physically active. 
And we're not even too sure of all the mechanisms for how exercise has these beneficial effects. So first and foremost, exercise must be done if you have type one, even though it can be a little bit scary at first when you're administering insulin and not knowing how much you should be giving in a setting of exercise, it, it should be done. And then the second thing is it can be done so much more safely if you're wearing a CGM, because then you can get an early warning sign that your blood sugar might be rising because of exercise or dropping, might be dropping overnight after exercise is done late in the day. And so I think this is pretty critical. And then in, in the future, I think we'll see more and more integrated insulin delivery systems that use that information uh, about, about glucose from CGM, this so-called artificial pancreas, which, which is in development, but can certainly be improved upon in the next uh, few years as we see advancements in the so-called closed loop or artificial pancreas uh, area. You know, it's weird. If you look at indicators like glucose, you can force, you can eat, you can have glucose on demand and insulin is the lagging, the responding indicator. Mm -hmm. But with an insulin pump, for instance, that can be the input and the glucose is the response mechanism. So I would think there'd be a lot of study around, let's say insulin pumps or insulin injection. And what's the glucose response? Because now you're running the system in a way that's really never has been seen before. Well, exactly. When, when, when I was diagnosed, originally we were given a pretty much fixed dose of insulin and that didn't change from day to day. So we tried to have to eat our meals at the right time of day and at the right amount of carbohydrates so that we tried to minimize the noise in glucose, but with a consistent insulin delivery system. But now we're using technology that allows the insulin to be quite variable. So on some days you can eat next to nothing and be fine with type one diabetes if you're wearing one of these devices because you can take the noise out of glucose if you put the noise back in the insulin and so uh, there's a lot to be learned about how we can modulate insulin i wish that insulin was a little bit quicker to get into the body and to do its job it's quick you know it's it acts within maybe 10 or 15 minutes but it'd be great if it could act within seconds and it also would be great if you could turn it off in in the body and some research has looked at trying to make insulin glucose responsive in the body. So it would be a dose of insulin is delivered, but it would, it would have most of its action when glucose was high and it somehow could uh, reduce its activity when insulin was, when glucose was dropping. I think that would be an incredible discovery that I think it's possible. They have shown some animal work to, to look at this. It would just, just give us some more freedom around glucose control. I think with taking a, a dose of, of a hormone that's just so powerful uh, in its action. Well, you know, I spoke to some type ones and if you have an insulin pump, it's like you can go to sleep and not wake up again. I mean, the insulin yeah. pump, I don't know if they really yeah. should tie into the CGM, I would think. It should. Uh, and, and Strike a balance. Yeah, exactly. And there are currently two systems available, commercially available in the U.S. that do this uh, well. Medtronic's 670G system the glucose is speaking to the insulin delivery and then Tandem has the control IQ, uh, uh, also a hybrid closed loop system. So the systems are getting uh, smarter and better by sensing glucose and then just titrating the insulin dose accordingly. And there are other companies that are doing um, their pivotal studies now. One thing that's quite exciting is one company that has come out of academia is also adding glucagon to the insulin pump so that if for whatever reason, too much insulin has been delivered and, and or maybe the person's exercising, you might need the anti-insulin glucagon to bring it up automatically. And so that, that technology is now shown in some early studies to be 
uh, quite quite remarkable in keeping blood sugar closer to near normal in people living with, with diabetes because this additional hormone is, is like putting a break on the actions of insulin. So now you have basically a gas pedal for insulin and a break with glucagon and that's making control safer. And in those studies, no one has ever died because of insulin overdose because the glucagon there is a rescue hormone. So you can infuse glucagon through a pump and that puts a break on the insulin? Yeah, you could have a dual chamber pump or right now some of the studies are using two pumps. But I think in the future, it could be a dual chamber pump where one chamber has insulin and you can run that insulin a little bit more aggressively if you also have the second chamber that has glucagon, which will save you almost instantly if the if the insulin's run a bit, a bit too hot or if the person's exercising or for whatever oh. reason, they've taken too much, a bit too much insulin. This is called the bion. This is nicknamed now the bionic pancreas because there's two hormones in it. How fast does the glucagon act versus the insulin? It looks like the glucagon acts within about five minutes, and the insulin starts to act in about 15 minutes. And its peak action for insulin seems to still be around an hour later. So when you, if you're living with diabetes type one or type two, and you and you take a shot of insulin, let's say by pump or by needle, that that so called rapid acting insulin still takes about an hour before its peak. It's act. It, it's at hundred percent of its peak activity. It, yeah, sure. It starts to work in about 10, 15 minutes, but it's, it's kind of slow to turn on and to turn off. Whereas glucagon seems to be a bit faster. Well, it seems like a lot faster. Yeah. Well, so what's the interaction in these, in these systems where you have insulin and the CGM, like what's the interplay? Uh, you know, do you have much finer control of glucose or because of the delay in insulin action, it just, it's not there yet. I think it's improving compared to just, you know, what used to be one or two shots of insulin a day, a day with no CGM. And of course, the glucose variability was huge. Uh, then you added CGM. Then you added a, an insulin pump that, that could deliver insulin based on the CGM. So, you know, each five years, there's, we're seeing less variability in the glucose. There's still some variability and you can you can trick that by changing your diet a little bit or adding a bit of exercise at certain times of day. But I think in the future, it'll get even tighter because the insulin might work a bit faster if it's a faster insulin analog. And then if we get glucagon in there and then an algorithm, basically a sophisticated algorithm that tells the pump when to push the insulin, when to push the glucagon based on prediction. Uh, so it can, it can look into the horizon by 30 minutes and use a bunch of different uh, factors that, that it's almost machine learning in, in a way that begins to better understand your own unique physiology. I think glucose is going to get tighter and tighter over the next uh, several years, uh, you know, as we wait for a cure, hopefully for, for, for type one and, and type two. Well, also with, um, with an insulin pump that can have glucagon delivery, um, I can see you putting in you know, the machine calculating, okay, put some insulin now, but then now I'll put in a little bit of glucagon, a little bit of glucagon at certain yeah. at certain increments. So there's this feedback, this continual feedback, and the delivery of insulin is modulated by uh, by adding this as well at the right times in certain amounts. Exactly. Like we often, if you have diabetes, you often take your medication, you take your insulin, and then you eat your food, and your food's kinetic, or it's you know the food's absorption rate and breakdown in the gut, and then absorption of the bloodstream doesn't match perfectly your insulin kinetics and it never will. You know, you could be a food scientist that has mapped out exactly what you should eat, when you should eat, what are the different 
types of fats and proteins and carbohydrate, but it never matches perfectly. If you add glucagon, it doesn't, it just has to be somewhat close. And then you'll just add glucagon or add insulin. And then the kinetics of those hormones will better match the kinetics of your, of the food absorption that you're having. And I think that's the beauty of the bionic pancreas. What about uh, diets now? Do you, you know, I'm sure you have to look at vegan athletes, vegetarian athletes, <laughs> yeah. ketogenic athletes, yeah. et cetera. Yep. And some ketogenic, well, a, a ketogenic athlete is someone who maybe from time to time does a very low carbohydrate, high fat and or high protein and fat meal. There's some evidence that that may stress the, the system in such a way that it becomes beneficial for the way your muscles and metabolism adapt. And then they may switch to a, a, a more enriched carbohydrate meal if they're in performance. Some don't switch at all. They just try to go keto all the time. And we're learning a lot from CGM about these, these unique uh, athletes and, and the, their successes. Their glucose tends to run quite low, but not dangerously low. It's not something we recommend for people who take insulin if they have type 1. It's, it, it can be done, but it's very difficult to do. Because obviously, if you take your insulin and then don't eat carbohydrates, you could develop hypoglycemia. But there are some athletes that are experimenting with this with type 1, and they're doing okay. Um, we, we see athletes who are trying all sorts of things. Some of the elite level team Nova Nordisk riders that I've worked with and published their data on, they don't do very well on a ketogenic diet if they do it all the time, because they just don't have enough glycogen to, to perform over, let's say a six or seven day stage race where you're, you're biking every day for several hours, but, but other athletes, when they're doing more singular events, they're doing fine on these ketogenic diets. So it depends on the type of sport that these athletes are in. And then whether you want to go keto full-time or just keto or modified, modified fasting or whatever you want to call it at certain phases of your training and or competition. And that, and that, that's been really eye-opening for, for me. I think you have to go into this with an open mind. We're learning a lot from these athletes. And I think that the prescription is probably going to evolve over the next several years based on what they're seeing and what we're seeing in lab in their performance data. Well, very good. Uh, Mike, what's the best way for people to learn that more about your protocols and to follow your research? I'd, I'd be happy if people uh, browsed our website, which has links to some of the lectures I do on these topics and some of the papers we've published, position stands and consensus guidelines and new and emerging technologies. So that's at www.yorku.ca slash mriddell, R-I-D-D-E-L-L slash, or just Google um, Riddell Lab at York University. Well, very good. Mike, thanks for coming. And it's uh, really interesting work you're doing. And you know, keep it up. Thank you for being here. Well, thanks for giving me the opportunity to share some of our learnings over the last little while, Richard. I really appreciate your time. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.